is sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. As Molly suggested, it may be very well the case that all of this was for nothing, that this was an investigation without a crime. I'm asking him to lay it all out. I stood by Mr. Mueller because I believe in the rule of law. There's politics and there's the rule of law. It seemed to me that uh, that is a substantial finding there, and I think it's good news for, um, you know, for the president and for his campaign. And now, live from the National Religious Broadcasters Proclaim 19 in Anaheim, California, Stacy Washington. Hey everybody, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being with us. What I want to do right now is get back to the phones. Um, we have Sam from Tennessee. He's back on the phone. Sorry for that phone mix-up. What's your comment today, Sam? Well, here's the question that I have. And by the way, uh, God bless all of y'all in the network, and we're making you an honorary Tennessean. Uh, oh, you don't I have to make me honorarian. My family is from there. I still have family that lives oh, in really? Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell them the two, two greatest states in the union start with the capital right. C, and we're one of them. Uh, but right. anyway, I hear all of this stuff about they talk about Hillary won the popular vote, but that Trump won the Electoral College. Let's go back to election night when all the news stations were reporting as the polls were closing. They were reporting on polling numbers of people that voted. They reluctantly declared Donald Trump the winner that night. The Electoral College does not vote until December. So how did she beat him by popular vote, and yet he won by Electoral College? That's the question I have. Nobody's been able to answer it, and I would like for you to address it again for our audience back home here because your program goes off at 3 o'clock here. But just can you help me with that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so you're, first, off, first off, the program has our first hours on American Family Radio, and then both hours are on Urban Family Talk. Um, which you can find out more, urbanfamilytalk.com. Obviously, we have a great lineup over at AFR, and we love the programming before us and the programming after us, so I don't want to be you know, poaching listeners or anything like that, but we're, we're two hours strong on, on Urban, which is where we originated from. It's where we started. And so when you talk about the Electoral College, um, and, and they're talking about the number of counties. So our election process is like 50 different elections, and then at the end, the electors from each state award the votes based on how many people voted in each county. And that's how you end up with the electors giving their, their you know, certain number of votes go to this candidate, certain number to that candidate. Um, the, so if you take out a couple of counties in New York, that's how you get the 3,000 of the votes. And I, and I did go over this the other day on the show. 3,000 votes, or not 3,000, 1.5 million votes alone that were a part of her electoral college or the, the popular vote win came from like three or four counties in New York. So that's why even though they, those votes were overwhelming in those individual areas in New York City, and the rest of the, the, the vote overage for her popular vote win came from California. That's the reason why the founders don't want us to have just a straight popular vote. Because the popular vote would mean that the only two places that would matter would be California and New York City. And those two states would, the specific areas of those states would be the only places that uh, people who were running for the presidency would have to campaign. Everybody else would be campaigning I don't know where they'd be campaigning. They, they wouldn't need to because 
you, it wouldn't matter. You just have to win the popular vote in areas that are heavily populated. Um, so essentially, this entire discussion about eliminating the Electoral College ignores the fact that out of all of the counties that were available to win, Donald Trump overwhelmingly won the county-level vote as opposed to Hillary Clinton. And he overwhelmingly won in the Electoral College by winning a couple of states that were the swing, swing states in the Rust Belt that shouldn't have been in play that were because Hillary Clinton didn't campaign there. So that's the reason why. Um, and I can look up a little more detail on that to try to share, but I hope that answers your question, Sam. Let's go to Wes in uh, Louisiana. Wes, thank you for calling the show today. Hello. Hey, Wes. Thanks for calling the show today. Hey, yeah, you bet. And it's Iowa, not Louisiana. Oh, Iowa. Okay, the they had L.A. on the there. Hawkeye State. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's all right. Hey, <laughs> my question is this, and I've never heard anybody address it, and I've been saying it for 20 years, and I'm not an anti-education person. I, I do have an associate's. I don't have a bachelor's, but we have all these issues. You just had a, a you know, a five- or ten-minute segment about jobs that, People are graduating with 160 or 180 thousand dollars worth of debt, or it costs mm-hmm. that much to get the degree to get a job that pays below the national average. Yeah. When are, when are we as a society are going to call the colleges into rain and say, "Listen, we need to streamline these things"? I mean, I went to a school that graduated 200 from the high school, the whole high school. I went to a community college, and I was taking the same thing. You know, the same math classes that I took in high school, in, I mean, in a small town in the Midwest, over and over. And then we, we take classes that have nothing to do with the area of expertise we're trying mm-hmm. to get in. And it's just we graduate with so So why don't we rein the colleges in and say, hey, listen, if we need a degree in education, cut it down to X number of hours. If we need a degree in political science, let's cut it down to X number of hours. I mean, is there nothing we can do? So, first off, the alumni of universities have a lot to do with what happens there because they, the alumni are our primary source of extra dollars to the colleges and universities. And if we had alumni who were willing to do that, that would really make a huge difference. The other thing is President Trump just recently made an announcement about this where he was talking about um, the return on investment. I, we covered that on the show last week. We were talking about it's Betsy DeVos, President Trump, and they made this announcement about how they're they're absolutely reigning in colleges and saying, we want you to have a metric by which you would measure the return on investment. And if it's not a good return on investment, then something has to give. I think if, if they took just your idea, let's, let's just go there. If they took your idea and cut out everybody having to take a psychology class and everyone having to take, you know, 30 uh, credits worth of electives. Just eliminate all of those electives and say, what are the core classes that you have to take in your degree career field? People would be graduating in two and a half to three years and they would shave off a whole year, year and a half. Some people would graduate in two years. They would just go straight through the summer and they would get done in two years. And I think a lot more people who currently would never go to college because they don't want to spend four more years in school, they'd go if they could get it done in two years and come out with a degree that would enable them to do the career that they really want to be involved in. And that goes for teaching and so many career fields. You have the the list of classes that they're taking is packed to the gills with all of these electives. And like you said, math classes that they already took, stuff like that. Right. And I agree. But don't these universities, especially the state universities, don't they get some of our tax money? So shouldn't we have some 
input besides just the alumni? Because obviously the alumni are not going to be for, you know, streamlining and getting, you know, bringing in half the money they would normally bring. Well, so, yes, for your state schools, your tax dollars support those, and that's your state legislature. So you'd go to your, you know, your state senators and your state reps, your state house reps, and they would have to come up with a bill that would basically say you want to streamline education. And the first thing that would happen, I can tell you right now, the first thing that would happen is, because all educators are in these huge unions and huge consortiums for uh, administrators and stuff, they would immediately begin to fight back against that. And the NEA and other higher education organizations would come down on these legislators like a ton of bricks. They would take the funding. But if the voters, if it's what the voters want, then the voters would have to counteract that by saying, if you don't do something, then we have to, you know, we, we have to unseat you and send someone down to the state house that will take care of this. It's, it's an sure, issue that if the state schools did it and more people were flocking to state schools, then the private schools would do the same thing. They would. They would mirror the actions. Sure. But it takes someone to make the first step, the, the first sure. uh, streamline. It, it just speaks of the hypocrisy we see everywhere right now. I mean, it's typically the people with the education that are saying that are fighting the greed, you know. Well, guess what? If you're a college instructor... <laughs> And you're teaching classes that have absolutely to do with nothing to do with 80% of the curriculum that's really needed out there. I mean, don't talk to me about being greedy, you know. So I, you know, I, to me, it's just it's just a sore point. And and thank you for your explanation. I'd never heard the explanation of President Trump doing something about that or attempting mm. to. But I've been wondering about this for years. But it, it just seems like it's a huge uphill battle. Well, you're not the only one. I had a friend of mine tell me, and he has a, he has a fantastic education, and he's a radio host as well. And I was telling him that our oldest was getting ready to go to college, and he said, make sure and go down her list and see what's on there for uh, her classes. See how many of the classes she's taking have zero to do with her, her, uh, her degree field. And she's studying biology. So um, this is something where she's got to have ecology, biology, you know, one, two, and three, and four, and advanced physiology and anatomy and all these classes that I can barely pronounce. And I, when I looked at hers, because she's going to a state STEM school, she has very little fluff in her in her list of classes that she has to take. But that's not the case for other kids who are taking, you know, like a business degree. They make you take a bunch of classes with that that you don't actually need to do a business degree, that, to, to do a job associated with that. So it, it's needed. I think in today's world where we're trying to get things done more quickly and efficiently and with a better return on investment for money. It is ridiculous for someone to go to school for social work and spend 170 grand or to be a preschool teacher and spend 180 grand. It just doesn't make any sense. And what you've suggested would actually do something about that positively. So, it's a great suggestion, but I think somebody I guess somebody's got to start an organization and then grassroots spread it all over the country and have it in different areas, different states and see which states can actually do something about it. I guarantee you the first state school or college or university uh, or university system for an entire state that takes up the advice of our good caller here like that actually makes this decision and makes those changes uh wes suggested some fantastic ideas there the first state right, university thank, system thank that does it would, would have the success yeah thank you for calling um that's going to be the first school that people are like looking at and saying we want to go there and i think some people would say you know, to play devil's advocate, I don't agree with it, but some people would say, no, no, you can't do that um, because if you do that, 
then it takes some of the collegiality out of getting a, a college education. Well, anyone who has extra money to spend can go for the extra two or three years, you know, and take the extra classes that they want to take. It wouldn't prevent anyone from taking those classes, but it would mean that people who really want to get done with their degree and they need to have the time uh, to, to get it done quickly would be able to do so. So I'm, it's a fantastic idea that Wes had. Um, and thank you so much for the call. So this whole thing with the Mueller investigation has been pretty embarrassing for the Democrats. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed, I'm on my Facebook page, I posted some pictures of um, some panels on CNN and other places. And the panels actually show um, everybody sitting around. It's like a panel of like, it looks like 30 people. It might be more like 10. And they're just looking depressed about what's happening with them. And what, what the news that they're discussing is obviously the Mueller report. And everyone's also saying things like, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I haven't seen the report. That's, that's what I see a lot of people on, on the big network saying. We haven't read the report. We only have the summary by Barr. Until we've seen the report, we can't, really can't believe it. Which, if Republicans were saying that by a report, about a report that was generated by the, um, the, the Democrats, they'd say, look at them. They're just like they're science deniers on climate change. They're report deniers. They're not willing to listen to the report that's been issued. Well, the fact is... No one's seen the report. I mean, I, I think the president has had access to some of it, but no one's seen it. So if if the prerequisite is that we have to see the report, then I guess we're probably never going to be able to accept what the report says. And so that's that's ludicrous. Um, I, I'm, I'm not willing to accept that answer. If they're embarrassed and they don't want to admit it, then fine. Just say, I don't want to admit anything and move on. But don't make it about the fact that... Um, we haven't seen the report. Okay. All right. When we get back, we're going to be talking about the Democratic presidential nominee, who that will be in 2020. Oh, also Victor Davis Hanson. We will be talking to Victor Davis Hanson when we get back. You stay right there. first day of the week, very early in the morning, we took the spices that we'd prepared it and we went into the tomb. We found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When we went in, we didn't find the body of our Lord Jesus. Who took him? Where is he? Who took him? Why do you look for the living among the dead? Where's Jesus? He's not here. He has risen. Jesus was alive. He's alive! Jesus was betrayed, abandoned, mocked, beaten, and then crucified on a cross for sinners like you and me. The Son of God was buried, and after three days, He rose from that grave. Urban Family Talk encourages you to rejoice in the glorious reality that our God is a living God. 
Up next, two minutes to think about it with Dr. Carol Swain, a bold Christian speaking truth to power. Here's Carol with today's message. Those of you over the age of 40 will remember a time when you could sit down with friends who held different, sometimes vastly different views from your own, and calmly, rationally discuss and debate the merits of both sides. Free and open debate has always been the American way to get our ideas out there and for others to question whether or not we're on the right track. It never hurts to get the opinions of others. You may not have agreed with those opinions, but it never hurts to hear them until now, of course. Suddenly, it seems to be the property of the left. There is no discussion of opposing views. Well, none opposing theirs, at least. You disagree with me, and you're an is or an obic. Insert whatever you like, which immediately shuts down any debate, gives them the moral high ground, and makes you the instant bad guy or gal. You might think that's an efficient way of closing down debate. It just shows the left has no intellectual depth when the only recourse is to hurl insults, labels, and meaningless slogans from protest signs. It just shows they can't debate the issues. They only know how to yell, scream, insult, and be obnoxious. That's pretty much how the left handles political, environmental, or any topic these days. If they would just shut up and debate, we'd soon see that many of our legislators, university professors, and presidents have no clothes. Learn more about Dr. Carol M. Swain and help support her ongoing work with your tax-deductible donation to Be The People Project at carolmswain.com. That's carolmswain.com. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for being here today. It's uh, bucket list time. I get to check this off of my bucket list, and I'm actually speaking to this next author. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome Victor Davis Hansen. He has written so many books. Like, if you Google him, the list of books that he's written is it's just it's amazing. And then on top of that, he has this New York Times bestseller by Victor Davis Hansen, The Case for Trump. And this is his latest book. You can find it at all major retailers, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. And I guarantee you, you're going to want to read it. I already have, uh, you know, have it on my list to actually purchase. And I got the Audible version, the audio book. Um, so I'm finishing up a couple of other books, and then I'll be launching into this one. Victor Davis Hansen, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about this. Why did you write The Case for Trump? Well, you know, I, I looked at most of the books that were out there since he was elected, maybe 30, and they were either that he was a saint or a sinner, but I wanted as a historian to analyze how he got elected, how he did so well for being the first president without military and political experience, at least in his first two years, why people hate him so much, and what's the prognosis, what does it look like in 2020? So when you talk about 2020, the, the liberals like to paint President Trump as being very weak, not having a chance, and most of the media are already down-talking the economy. If they can get the economy to dip into a recession and then you know hobble the president and the media, they feel like they have a strong chance of putting one of their candidates up against him and prevailing. 
I don't see it that way at all. My view from the ground is that the president is very strongly in a position where he could win in 2020. What did you find when you were looking at this? Oh, I tried to look at analytics that were unbiased. So usually a president, a second term, is either a person who's not elected for the second term or has a failed second term. It's because of an economic downturn of George H.W. Bush or Jimmy Carter. Or it's a scandal like Richard Nixon, or it's non war that plagued the Bush administration, George W. Bush. I don't see Trump getting into an unpopular war. I think the economy is going to stay strong through 2020. And with the Mueller investigation, I sort of said that in the book. I, I said explicitly that there would be no illusion found. He's not going to have any of these problems that most uh, incumbents have going for re-election. The second thing is. If you look at Barack Obama, Bill Clinton's popularity at the beginning of their third year, it's almost identical to what Trump is, between 43 and 44-plus. And then if you look at their House and Senate performance in the first midterms, Trump did actually better. He picked up two Senate seats. They lost, respectively, eight and six, and then they lost a lot more House seats. So by historical margins, remember that Clinton killed Literally, I mean, Bob Dole in the 1996 election and Barack Obama pretty easily defeated Mitt Romney. But Trump is doing better than the two most recent presidents that were reelected. And he doesn't have any of these historical uh, albatrosses around their neck that stop incumbent. So it's really going to depend on who's going to run against him. And it looks to me like whoever it is is going to get tagged with this progressive agenda of. Uh, permissible infanticide, the Green Deal, 90% income tax, Medicare for everybody, abolish ICE, tear down the wall, uh, reparation, cancel student debt. And that's not, none of those issues uh, pull 50%. And so he's going to he's going to be running against somebody that's going to be either partially or total identified with these very unpopular issues. And then he's getting, he's not going to have the and he's getting, he's getting better at what he does. Sometimes indiscriminately, but he's speaking better in his team, especially in foreign policy. Pompeo and Bolton are more in sync with him. So I think he's got about a 65% chance of winning, even with a media that's running consistently 85 to 90% negative. So I, 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 I love that you're basing this off of analysis because that, that, it's one thing to have a gut feeling, but it's another thing to actually look at what other presidents have done and compare it. And that's what you do so well as a historian and as as an author. But I'm wondering, what what is your take on the reaction? So we've seen the Mueller report finally come out, finally the conclusion to that, that just two years of, of uncertainty. We see the end of that, and we see the media and the Democrats all kind of moving together in unison to delegitimize A.G. Barr, who just wrote basically a summary. He just summarized it. And they're saying they have to see it. We know they can't see all of the Mueller report because there are other investigations ongoing. There's some information that's classified. So they'll never be able to see every single page of it. Where do you see them going with that? Well, I think a small group, the the initial two reporters, David Corn and... Michael Eiskopf were the ones that leaked the dossier before the election and did a lot of damage. His polls went down by about three points right before the seven days before the election and eight days in one case. And they both come out and said that the dossier was wrong and that 
that all of that was unfounded. They kind of not quite apologize, but there's some people who feel that if they don't apologize or they don't say that they were wrong, their reputations in the media are destroyed. But that's a minority. I think you're right. I think the majority feel that they can just double down, just like they did with the dossier. And remember, they've tried everything: the Twenty Fifth Amendment, the Elements Clause, the Logan Act, work the Electoral College voting that palace coup that McCabe and Rosenstein were engaged in. So in their way of thinking, just these all have failed, so Mueller failed, so now they're going to go on to uh, House investigations or, you know, his tax returns or something. They'll never do that. But that's a symptom of a, a larger problem they have, that they don't have an agenda, so they, they can't say, we can give you 5% GDP. Or we can give you record, even more record low minority unemployment. Or we can give you more oil production. Or, you know, we can open up more natural gas. We can, and they can't say any of that. So they're stuck on this agenda that, gosh, it's banning internal combustion engines or permitting people to kill a baby after it leaves the birth canal. And then meanwhile, Trump's got a, a, he's got a pretty good message to Democratic constituents. He can tell swing voters, suburban you know, voters, that the world is safer. I'm dealing with North Korea. I'm trying to get out to restore triangulation with Russia against China. Uh, I'm, I'm clamping down on China. He can tell minority voters, if you're a Latino, he can say, I don't like this anti-Catholic stuff that Diane Feinstein and Miller Harris are saying. I don't like radical abortion. I don't like cheap labor competing with your wages. I don't like uh, this uh, identity politics that hurts your schools. When you get illegals coming in, they overwhelm their schools, their gang members. You can tell the African-Americans. I mean, we have le- record low unemployment. Uh, abortion has devastated the African-American community, and mm-hmm. that came out of the Margaret Singer eugenicist movement, and I don't like that. I want to make sure that as many African-American kids can be born as possible. And uh, I don't like the anti-Catholic, I don't like the anti-religion message of the Democrats. So I think he can pick up an additional 10 to 15 percent of the minority vote in some of the swing voters. And if he does, then the Democrats don't have an answer because they're so heavily leveraged into identity politics. And they've lost the other constituencies. So I, I, I think he's got a very good chance if he plays his cards right. And so far he's done pretty well for a person without political experience. So, you know, Victor, you're making a point that I think it, it, it can't be elevated high enough. It, I, I think people discount it, especially on the left, but even some on the right discount the unique position that the president is in because he is an outsider and he's proven that he's willing to do things and say things and even uh, tick off people that others, they're not willing to do those things, they're not willing to tick certain people off. And they're not willing to go against the just the common orthodoxy that this is the way Republicans behave, this is the way they speak, this is the way they operate when they're attacked, this is how hard they fight before they give up. All of that's now out of the window. And you say in your book that America needs the outsider Trump to do what normal politicians would not and could not do. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's it's right. Remember that Trump had the suit on, the orange hair, the, the, the long tie, the Queen's weird accent. But boy, if he came to Bakersfield, California, or he he went into Atlanta, or he went into Cincinnati, he didn't change. 
Every one of these politicians, Hillary adopted a southern accent whenever she went south of the Mason-Dixon line. When Obama <laughs> went into the inner city, he sounded like he was grew up in Detroit. When Joe Biden did, he did the same. Uh, John Kerry put on camouflage as if he was like a hunter. But Trump, whatever he was, he was authentic. He was also empathetic. He started talking about our inner city youth, our vets, our farmers. And then he went into West Virginia, which had been devastated by the Obama coalition. And she, Hillary Clinton had just left in 2016 and said, you're going to shut down this industry. We're going to put you all out of work. We're going to have to build solar panels. And he said, I love big, beautiful, clean coal. So it was very strange that somebody who had no reputation for being empathetic actually cared more about the working class than the, the traditional Republican or Democratic politician. You know, so that's one of the stories that I love about um, if if you watch any of The Apprentice, you know, way back when he had his own TV show, or if you've read any of the things that have been written about him and his relationship with the kids, is that he raised the, the kids from his first marriage with uh, uh, Ivana Trump. Those, those children were raised on the construction sites. So you have the daughter, Ivanka, and the two boys, Eric and Don Jr., we're, you know, putting on hard hats and all summer long, instead of going to the Hamptons or, you know, kind of lolling around because their dad was rich, they were on the construction sites learning about building buildings and doing projects. And so they would know some of the uh, general contractors and the foremen and those guys, they knew them. And the, the relationship that their father had with them was an example of how to treat people. And so the, these are stories that the mainstream media would have told if Donald Trump was Barack Obama. If he was a hardcore liberal, they would tell those stories. But because he's not, no one knows them. But they kind of go to the heart of what you're explaining about his ability to empathize with people who he shouldn't be able to because he's so, you know, rich and detached, which isn't the truth. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think our traditional background of a president, whether it's Bill, Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, has been Harvard or Yale Law School. And that doesn't give you the experience of dealing, if you're a builder in Manhattan, with unions, environmental groups, local groups, social activists, the city council, all sorts of people that make it almost impossible to build anything. And yet he did. So he, he had the type of experiences and practicality, and he had to work with unions and working people, and he liked them. And so it wasn't abstract. And I think the Republican Party had kind of got into the mood that they would rather lose nobly than win ugly. So that when Barack Obama ran against John McCain, and McCain said, I'm not going to mention Reverend Wright, or Mitt Romney was in a second debate with Candy Crawley, he didn't object really when she hijacked that as a moderator. I don't think Trump would have done that. So I think a lot of people said, you know, he may be chemotherapy and it might be toxic, but he's going to kill the cancer first. And we, we don't. He'll say anything, anywhere, anytime, anybody, and we need that. We need somebody who fights back. We don't want any more Marcus of Greensbury rule Republicans. And that got <laughs> the establishment angry because they would rather lose nobly and, and hang out with the people of their like class in Washington and New York, but not other people. They said, you know what? We're hurting. We need a good economy. You guys, whether you win or lose, it's all the same to you. You don't have any skin again. I, you know, Victor, I call them the sweater vest wearers. 
And, you know, God bless them because there's nothing wrong with wearing a sweater vest or being principled or, you know, not wanting to get into muddy fights. But we're past that now. And I, I, one of the things that I noticed, I've, I've been able to hear the president speak to different groups on, I think, three or four occasions. And one of the things I've noticed about him that is pretty amazing is how he's able to moderate his comments to empathize with the people he's speaking with without being phony or uh, kind of pandering to them. And I, I, I don't think it's an act when he says we need to improve our cities or we need to bring jobs back. When he's, when he's speaking about that, I really feel like he has a connection to the American people that others just haven't had. And I know that the left discounts it, but it's real. It's the same kind of retail political capital that Barack Obama had in spades, even though he kind of faked the accent. But he was able to motivate Democrats and touch their emotions. And Donald Trump was able to do that with Republicans. I think so. I think people, even when they don't entirely agree with them, they at least feel that what you hear and what you see is what you get, and that he really will try to open up Anwar like he promised, or build the Keystone Pipeline like he promised, or get out of the Iran deal like he promised, or try to address the repeal of Obamacare and, and secure the border. Whether he's successful or not, they don't feel that he's you know, you can keep your doctor or you can keep your insurance plan or read my lips, but most politicians face things that they don't have any intention of honoring. So, and that's, that's the disconnect because we were told, you know, he's been married three times, had all kinds of financial up and down, he exaggerates. But what I think he really represents is that he doesn't have those sterling credentials as Obama did or Clinton did or Bush did, and he succeeds. And he is succeeding better than all three of them in their first two years. Then they feel that's a referendum on them and their class. They think, wow, he doesn't listen to counsel on foreign relations. Wow, he doesn't talk to the Brookings Institution. Wow, he doesn't call up the Harvard government. But yet, the economy's booming and we're getting out of that Iran flawed deal. So, what does this mean about us? And I think that's one of the reasons they dislike him so much, besides the class of Spain. Uh, they just feel that he represents a refutation of everything they embody and illustrate. Mm. You know, I hear the music. Uh, you're you're one of my favorites, mainly because of what you've just demonstrated here right now, which is your knowledge. It's far far ranging, and you do all of the work behind it, the writing, and all of that. And it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Really, an honor, Victor Davis Hanson, author of your latest best-selling book, The Case for Trump. Thank you for joining us. I hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, we are going to be back with more Stacy on the Right broadcasting live from National Religious Broadcasters Convention, Anaheim, California. You stay right there. We'll be right back. Can solid teamwork building principles apply to all of life? Here's Tony Dungy, author of The Soul of a Team, with today's Uncommon Moment. As a coach, I organized what we called the mock game before the start of a new season. The special teams coach and I ran a team made up of backup players. The rest of the coaching staff took the starters. I wanted to see the young players and the backups handle the mental adversity of going against the starters. Who would be able to perform well even when their team was outmanned? Who would go out there and do their jobs no matter what? 
The mock game was designed to help every player fully own his own role. But that was just one day. Those who accomplished the most were prepared, present, and positive, and were proactive each and every day. Tony Dungy, best-selling author of The Soul of a Team, from Tyndale House. More at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. Family is an institution set forth by God, one man and one woman for life, with the outflow being children produced by that union. It's obvious to all that there is an attack on the family in our country, and especially on fathers. Whether it's the cycle of sin that persists in our families or the pressure from our government to exclude men from being intimately involved, the strategic battle is on for the souls of men. Join us in the battle to strengthen fatherhood. UrbanFamilyTalk.com Listen to Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on Urban Family Talk. She's sharp. I mean, did you hear that? Pointed. Remember that you're not only a Christian on Sunday. And insightful. Deception and lies have been accepted as the norm from the Democrats. But most of all, she's on the right. That scripture from the Bible that says the heart of the fool inclines to the left just kept popping into my mind. Stacy on the Right. Now heard weekday afternoons from 2 to 4 Central on Urban Family Talk. What or who motivates you to live and do life? Whether it's the motivation of your business or being healthy and fit, many times the why behind many individuals' determination is because of their children or grandchildren or even a spouse. Their primary why is because of an infallible being instead of Jesus. I know you're probably saying victory. I'm sure Jesus is a reason too, but Jesus should be the only reason for our whys in life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 37, if you love your father, mother, son, or daughter more than him, then you are not worthy of being his. But if we give up our life for him, we will find life in him. It is only because of him we can do the things he has enabled us to do. Have your why be because of the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross for you. With a heart for the urban family, I'm today's urban woman, Victory Hollyfield. Connect with us more at urbanfamilytalk.com. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Guys, walking right here. Yeah. I got her standing right here. I was looking in the truck and running up the back side here. Robbie Armstrong's security camera caught the Saturday sneak attack. The squirrel ran behind me and jumped on my side, went down my shoulder and got on my elbow and just chomped on me. The attack lasted only seconds, but the little guy did a number on Robbie's arm and elbow. It just clawed me up all over here and bit me here and here, his teeth. That's where he came up here and bit me there and I just grabbed him and threw him on the ground. There are plenty of squirrels and other wildlife living in this rural part of Sarasota County, but Robbie's attacker is different. A neighbor nursed the squirrel to health as a baby. And it was good with their kids, but it just attacked the mom over there and the husband. So they let it go. Yeah. Recently, the same squirrel that got him scratched his stepson. Robbie recognizes him when he sees him. This squirrel doesn't have much hair on its tail because mm-hmm. the six-year-old next door mm-hmm. trimmed the hair on his tail and put it on her Barbie's head. He's named him Eight Up after his race car and truck. I love the animals, I mean, but not when they attack me. Watch one more time. Eight Up beelines for Robbie, climbs his leg and goes to town. I saw him, I grabbed him by his head and just threw him on the ground. Mm-hmm and took off chasing him. Robbie used a BB gun to try and scare Eight Up away. It didn't work. He 
He's likely plotting his next attack. Welcome back to the program. If you are not laughing at that story about this squirrel that is just like demolishing people, he comes out of nowhere, runs up the person, bites them, scratches them, and then has to be basically ripped off the person's body and thrown. And I just thought the video was so funny. Uh, check the Facebook page. You can watch it too. Um, so now I want to pivot over to, we didn't actually get to our um, daily confession when we were in segment one because we had Todd Starnes join us and it was just such a pleasure to speak with him. Um, it, awesome. And we, we can expect more of that uh, the, all this week at National Reg Religious Broadcaster. So thank you guys for tuning in. Um, I want to talk about Bible verses on being faithful to God. So first of all, God is not looking for us to be perfect. He's not looking for us to be um, you know, paragons of virtue who never make a mistake. In fact, if you look through the Bible, you see where he's used people who've made mistakes over and over and over again. God takes the flawed, the individuals who um, they haven't had a perfect history, and he uses them for his glory. That is an example for us to understand that we, we're not going to be perfect. So the idea that we should be perfect, it's ridiculous. It's undoable. We have to do our best, but we have to rely on God. What God is looking for is our devotion. He's looking for us to be faithful. So that means in the high times, the low times, the good times, the bad times, when everything's going our way, when it's not going our way. He's looking for us to be faithful. So the first verse I want to give you is 1 Samuel 26, 23. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch my hand out against the Lord's anointed. Now, this is an amazing example of someone who had every right to exact vengeance upon someone who had really persecuted him and been his enemy. And we're talking about the relationship between Saul, who was at that time the king of Israel, and David, who was anointed to be the next king. Now, Saul didn't know that it would take so long for David to become the king. And he had not been told by God that he was going to lose his kingdom. So he literally could have just said, hey, you're the next anointed. You know, come on, let me mentor you. Let, you know, spend time with me. Be, be as one of my sons. But Saul didn't do that. So he wasn't willing to go along with God's plan. So the lesson there is that we have to be willing to go along with God's plan. Here's something I can tell you from my own personal experience is that whether you're willing to go along with God's plan or not, God's plan is going to be ex executed. So you can go along nicely or you can go along kicking and screaming, but you're going to go along. God says he's here for you. He gives you the desires of your heart. You love him. You're faithful to him. And that's how it can play out quite, quite joyfully for us. So in this passage in 1 Samuel 26, 23, David said God would repay every man for his faithfulness. But the question for us is, are we faithful like David? And first of all, that's a pretty high bar. David was, is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. God loved him especially because of his attitude. He always had a song in his heart. The songs that he wrote about things that were happening to him were in every single one. He describes his problems. He complains to God. He someone like your pastor or someone who's nice enough to be what happens then is it that you um
Hi, I'm Crawford Ritz with a Legacy Moment. For years, God called me to an itinerant ministry, and that meant I traveled a great deal and did a lot of speaking. Interestingly enough, I've never asked for a speaking engagement in my life. It's a conviction that the Lord placed on my heart years ago when I first began to travel and speak. In fact, I've never asked for or sought a position of leadership I've ever had. I think this is God's way of helping me remember that he's in charge. I love the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah was barren and her womb had been closed up and seemed like it was impossible for her to give birth to a child. But God opened her womb. And in chapter 2, Hannah sings an incredible song of thanksgiving. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, oh, so we had a little, uh, we had a little hiccup there, but we're back. Um, so I, what I want you to get from that is that God will reward our faithfulness. We can rest assured that God is going to be with us and that he doesn't miss anything. It's when in that moment where you feel invisible and lost and you feel like no one's noticing that you're having a problem or no one cares. That is when God is working on your behalf and you have to be faithful and trust him that he's going to work it out. So there's another verse I want to give to you, 2 Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. So God's looking for us to have our hearts fully belonging to him, for us to be fully loyal to him. If we're faithful to God, he will show himself strong towards us in everything we do. And that's not just the big stuff, because sometimes we think, oh, man, I got this big problem. I got to go to the Lord. But it's our little problems, too. It's those little annoyances or little things that you you wish you knew how to deal with or you wish you had wisdom on or even it's something that's just an annoyance to you. Those are God problems, too. He's a big God who takes care of our big problems, but he's also intimately involved in our little like what we call the minutia of life in working those things out so we can experience more of him, have a closer relationship with him and have more of his joy. That joy, when we have it, it overflows from us. It's like a wellspring that it overflows from us and flows out to the people in our lives. It flows out as a witness to other people. So of course God wants to take care of the tiny things too. So he can then have that, that love and that joy flowing out from us that draws other people into the kingdom. So it's, it's, it's all benefits. There's no negative. There's no drawback. God wants us to have our heart fully his, be loyal to him. And in order to, to be there for him to show himself strong towards us in all that we do, we have to search our hearts and make sure that we're loyal and faithful to God. And so you might be thinking, oh, no, that doesn't sound like fun. Or, oh, no, that's not something I want to do. Or, oh, geez, that sounds like, yeah. It's, it's, that's not a bad thing. That's not something that we should be afraid of, searching our hearts. God will enable us to do what needs to be done. He's, he's able to help us to work those things out. So also, because I, ha- I have a few of these, and I'm, I love these. I love it when I'm, I, I read things like this and I understand. Um, it helps me to better understand what God wants me to do. And that's such a good thing. It, it lifts my spirit up for the day, and it kind of... It works against and counteracts the tiredness that sometimes settles in. You know, like 2 o'clock, you start getting like a little bit of that tiredness settling in on you. Um, Psalms 12.1 says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. What an indictment against our day. God is looking for faithful men and women, yet all over the world we hear, Help, Lord, the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. The body of Christ is in desperate need of faithful men and women. 
Are you one of them? And that's faithful wherever you are. Sometimes I hear people talk about this and it sounds as if every one of us is supposed to be packing up everything we've got and heading off to a mission to the mission field in Uganda or some faraway land. And some people are doing that and that's what God has for them to do. But for most of us, our ministry is right here. It's right in our neighborhood, our school, our church, our workplace, our you know, with our neighbors, with friends. It that's where our ministry is. Ask God to show you what it is that he has for you to do. What's so fun about that prayer, and I, I promise you, this is, it's just, it's so wonderful. If you pray that prayer, God will answer it, and you will be surprised. <laughs> One more time. You ask God what he has for you to do. Then you wait and see what he shows you, and then you will be surprised. And you'll feel joy at hearing from him and knowing that that's what he wants you to do. Um, so Proverbs 26 says, and it's 20 verse six, many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy, faithful man? This is similar to Psalms 12, one, except the verse says many a man proclaims his own loyalty. So lots of people will claim their own faithfulness, but real faithfulness is hard to find. And you've experienced this. I know I have over and over again, you know, you, you have someone say, um, I'm with you, but then when it's actually time to be with you, maybe they're not quite with you. So um, I, when, what you want to do is you want to, first of all, don't, don't, don't hold that too tightly. Um, people are going to people, but we want to be faithful and we want to be there for others, be fa- being faithful to them. Um, words are cheap. So it, the thing that we can do is not have our words be cheap and make sure that we're as faithful as we possibly can be and answering God's call for us. And so I want to give you a little bit of preview that, and that's the encouragement for today. I want to give you a little bit of a preview for uh, the remainder of the week. And mind you, we're going to be very fluid because we have guests who are going to be coming on who are local to um, the, the conference that we're attending. And one of those guests is Brad Mattis and Mallory Quigley of Life Issues. They're going to be with us tomorrow. So excited. Um, so excited to have them, to meet them, get to talk to them. We're going to enjoy uh, chatting with them. They're going to be primarily focusing on the New York and Virginia state abortion laws. But we're also going to talk about Life Issues Institute, um, which is a life pro-life grassroots partner of the Susan B. Anthony List Educational Fund. And their headquarters out is out in Cincinnati, Ohio. So we'll be talking to them. Um, he's also the president of the International Right to Life Federation and a frequent international speaker and, and lecturer on abortion and all related life issues. And that's going to be fantastic. We are also going to speak with on Thursday, uh, Erica Donalds. She's the chairman of the School Choice Movement. I'm so excited about this one. She's coming out of Tallahassee, Florida, um, talking about educational options that should be within reach of every family. And, um, you know, this is one of the subjects that I'm really passionate about. And I'm just always excited to get to speak to someone who's working in this arena, the school choice movement. So we'll be chatting with her. And then um, I am going to keep Friday under my belt, uh, close to the vest. I'm not going to tell you anything about that day just yet. But that's a whole lineup of guests that we have for the remainder of the week. Now, one of the things that I mentioned um, was this op-ed over at McClatchy, D.C. 
and they're talking about how it's already clear who the Democratic presidential nominee is going to be in 2020. Now, I, I feel, honestly, I'm pretty flummoxed about their nominee for 2020 because Joe Biden is a white man, and they seem to have a real aversion to white men over on the Democratic side right now. I mean, I, I think they should pick whoever uh, best elucidates their party ideals and values, but that's not a part of this conversation. Um, so I think one of the things that, that this article is talking about is Francis Beto O'Rourke is who this guy is calling it for. He thinks Francis Beto O'Rourke, and this is by Andrew Malcolm, who, full disclosure, he's a friend of mine, um, fantastic supporter of, of radio that we do here and, and everything else. And Andrew has written, like, I don't know, 20-some-odd books, and he's been writing for decades. And he's a genius when it comes to political, uh, you know, like calling things out like that. So I would take this seriously. Uh, if Andrew Malcolm says it's Beto O'Rourke, it's probably going to be Beto O'Rourke. But why? Well, he's going to admit to you that it's ridiculous to say it right now and to really think right now that we know. Um, but... And, and we know that the liberals are wishful. They, they do think that President Trump is weak. We just heard from Victor Davis Hanson that's not the case. We know Donald Trump is not weak going into 2020. Um, but the field, according to Andrew, has blacks, whites, a Hispanic, a child of immigrants, a Hindu, ex-mayors, ex-governors, current senators, a former professed Native American, and a retired microbrewer who claims to have been bullied in childhood. <laughs> and a New Yorker who calls herself a young mom at 52. But um, it's a real opening for a celebrity candidate, which is what O'Rourke is going to try to kind of walk into. I don't know if I agree that he's going to. Don't, I don't think he can beat President Trump, but I think he probably will be the one that they choose because he takes a good picture. All right. We're done for today, but we'll be back with you tomorrow with more Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association. Urban Family Talk. Urban Family Talk.